You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. I'm going to ask the congregation if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to have you stand one more time for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 5. The title of this sermon is Why We Sing. In fact, that's the title of the next three or four weeks in this series. Why We Sing. Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 18, Paul is writing. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, as it's been announced, we are beginning this morning a small series on the topic of congregational singing. Throughout this series, we'll reference singing in general as a common gift, a common grace of God upon all humanity. But we have in mind this application, specifically congregational singing as the main application of this series. Over the last 12 years, we have done sermons on the topic of preaching, on the topic of God's word. We've done sermons on the topic of communion and baptism and prayer and fellowship. But we have yet to take a long look at what is happening when the congregation week after week engages in singing. And the questions we want to answer is, is this a big deal to God? If not, why why are we doing it? Why do we stand to our feet and and sing together? Well, if God commands it, why does he command it? What is happening in us and to us as we sing? Is singing for singers? Is singing for the musically inclined? Or is it for all of us? What is different about singing, say, in your car on the way to church? What's different with that as, it, as opposed to singing together as a church? Is there a difference? The reality is, as I've thought through this, the reality is everyone has a theology for singing and music. We all have a theology. In other words, we all have a, we've all gathered some sort of understanding of what God desires when his people come together and sing. And so the task of a preacher, one who heralds the word of God, is is to say, is that theology as thoroughly biblical as it can be? Or where have we maybe imported 
some understanding of singing into the church? And where should we untangle ourselves from expectations as we gather to sing here? And so our task this morning and throughout this series is to move as close as we possibly can to God's good purposes for congregational singing. We want to understand from the Bible what God desires from his people as they sing and what God desires for his people as they sing. This is not a series about the style of music that we sing. You're not going to get some sort of old crotchety polemic against, you know, the current contemporary Christian music of the day and how we need to sing, you know, hymns that are at least 2,000 or 200 years old, or we shouldn't sing them at all. At this church, if you've come for any amount of time, you know that we sing both. We sing contemporary, newer songs, and we do enjoy the older hymns that are rich in theology and Christ-oriented. But this is not a series about style of Music. Although we do hope that what we learn about God's intention for congregational singing will continue to shape the kinds of songs that we, that we sing and the melodies that we choose. This is also not a series that is addressing merely the volume or the emotion behind singing. This is not an attempt for us to just get more emotional and louder on Sunday mornings. That is not our aim. Volume and emotion are not the best guide for whether or not a church is actually spirit-filled. Volume and emotion can be a barometer, but it should not be the barometer. For example, when the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors, won their championship three months ago, it was their fourth time in six years that they won the championship, just FYI. So it was a big deal. You can look it up and celebrate later, but it was a big deal. So in the stadium, right, there was volume. Well, we should say in the Bay Area, there was volume and there was emotion. Probably too much emotion over a basketball game. In our living room, in the Bud living room, there was volume and there was emotion when Steph is getting the first MVP of the finals ever. Right, So volume and emotion was happening both in my living room and in the stadium, but that's not a good gauge on whether or not that was actually being spirit-led or spirit-filled. Volume and emotion can be a barometer, a gauge, but if it's the gauge, we're just going to keep, it, it's, not, it's not healthy for a church because what we'll end up doing is just manipulating the moment only playing certain songs that get us riled up or, or circling the wagons again and saying, this, sing louder, church. Loud. That's not what we're after. That's not what we're after. Volume and emotion will ebb and flow from Sunday to Sunday. And if you try to capture that and conjure it, it's exhausting, both for the music leaders and for the congregation. So our, our aim is not merely volume or emotion. That said, our hope is that after our time this morning and through this series, more and more of God's people in our congregation will experience a kind of self-forgetful freedom when they sing. That's what we're after. 
a kind of self-forgetful freedom. And, and you've, if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you know what that feels like. When you just feel released to give your praise to God, and you're not insecure about what your voice sounds like or what others might think, you just feel this self-forgetful kind of freedom as you engage the throne of God with your voice. I know that as I, I'm preaching, I've talked to Al and Hans about this. That's the best kind of preaching when, when I'm entering this space of worship as I'm preaching where I'm self-forgetful. I'm not thinking about the words that I've stumbled over. I'm not thinking about the different distractions or the popping of the mic or whatever. There's just an undistracting self-forgetfulness that happens. And that's what I want in preaching. And that's what I want as I engage in corporate singing week after week. And some Sundays are, like I said, with volume and emotion, same thing with self-awareness. Sunday, from one Sunday to the next, it could just feel completely different. But at the end of the day, we want all of God's people to come in and feel this sort of release to engage God in corporate singing. As you look at the word of God, you are hard, it's hard to miss how important singing is to the heart of God. The Gettys in their little book on singing counted over 400 explicit references to singing in the Bible. Over 50 explicit commands from God to us to sing. It is central to the heart of God, this idea of singing. And so starting this week, as I've mentioned, in the next three weeks, we're going to look at some of these examples in the scriptures and discover as God's redeemed people, why do we sing? Why do we sing? And what's happening in that moment as we engage our vocal cords to the Lord? I hope that this series will not be just high level, 2,000 foot up theology, but it would come down into our congregation and it would become really practical for all of the church to engage in this important ministry. And so to begin our time, as we have read, we'll look to Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian church to begin this journey. Look at verse 18 as we begin. Paul says in verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I do not have enough time to catch us all up on what has taken place in this letter from Paul to the Ephesians. But just know that this is a letter written by the apostle to a local church in Ephesus. A local church, most likely much smaller than ours. And it was a, 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 a letter written to them to correct theology and to correct some of their living as an expression of their theology. And so by this time, by chapter 5 in Paul's letter, he has already moved from what the gospel is, an unpacking of what the gospel is, and now he's in that section of his letter where he's describing for the church in Ephesus what the gospel does. He's moved from what the gospel is to now what the gospel does. In other words, when Paul says to the church in Ephesus and to us now, do not get drunk with wine... Paul is not prescribing how one becomes a Christian. 
So I don't want you to leave here to be like, well, what does it mean to become a Christian? Well, don't get drunk with wine. That is not what Paul is saying. Instead, Paul at this point in the letter is describing what Christianity looks like once you've already been united to Christ through free grace and forgiveness in Jesus. And so since chapter four, Paul has been drawing on a contrast between those who are not spirit-filled, those who are not Christians, with those who are Christians. This is how the world, unredeemed from Christ, acts and behaves and values. And this is what the church, how the church acts and behaves and values those who are filled with the Spirit. And so here in verse 18 of chapter 5, Paul gives a commandment, both in the negative and the positive. He says, do not get drunk with wine. There's the negative. For that is debauchery or reckless living, living an uncontrolled life. But instead, here's the positive, be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying to be under the influence, this is really important, to be under the influence of too much alcohol. This is not prohibition on alcohol. But instead, to be under the influence of too much alcohol leads to reckless, out-of-control living. Instead, a Christian is not to be under the influence of excessive alcohol, but instead under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's a clear contrast. Don't be under the influence of excessive alcohol. Instead, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, some have taken this to mean to be under the influence of the Spirit. Some have taken that to mean that a Christian who is Spirit-filled is one who has lost control of themselves and does wacky things for Jesus. This is not what Paul is teaching. That would be an abuse of the text, and I can see how they get there. To be drunk with wine leads to an uncontrolled kind of life, and now to be drunk in the Spirit means you sort of lose control and do wacky things for Jesus. That is not what Paul is saying. Because we learn in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit, right, someone who is under the influence of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will display itself in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what's the last one? Self-control. So being spirit Fill doesn't mean we lose control, it means we gain it. In fact, that's exactly what John Stott says. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we do not lose control of ourselves, we gain it. And so that's clear enough, right, Paul? As Christians writes to us, we are not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. I get it, Paul, that makes sense. But what's truly remarkable in this text is what Paul points to next to describe a spirit-filled life. This is what has racked my brain for the last few weeks and really was a, a provoking for this series because Paul is going to go on to talk about individual lives, what it looks like to be spirit-filled as an individual person, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother. Paul will go on to talk about how we're to put on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. He goes on to talk about 
bondservants and slaves, all ways that we are to live spirit-filled lives. But before he goes on to talk about that kind of spirit-filled life, he draws our attention to congregational singing, which just blows my mind how central this is in the heart of the apostle. Paul applies spirit-filled life to congregational singing. It's as if Paul is saying that all of these individual and practical applications of the spirit-filled life flow out of your worshiping community. That all of these individual and practical applications of a spirit-filled life, being a good father, being a good employee, being a good husband, wife, all of those examples flow out of your worshiping community. So Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that look like, Paul? That's the question. What does that look like? Look at verse 19 now. The Spirit-filled life looks like addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You expect him to say other things. Don't get drunk with wine, got it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, got it. Here's what that looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In verse 19, notice first the diversity of songs that we are able to sing in a church setting. First, Paul says, sing the psalms. The Psalms is the songbook of the Old Testament. Not so ironically, it is the largest book of the Bible. 150 chapters, 150 songs that God has ordained, inspired for the church to sing. And we sing many of the Psalms here on Sunday morning. So sing the Bible. Next, Paul says, sing hymns and spiritual songs. Most scholars suggest that those are the same thing. Hymns and spiritual songs are the same thing. We're authorized to sing hymns and spiritual songs that are written by the church for the edification of the church. These are creative songs written by believers for the edification of the church that are rooted in the word of God. And so we are authorized as a church to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Songs. We are not authorized as a church to sing secular songs when we're together. Now, this is saying nothing about your personal playlist at home. This is about songs that are authorized for Sunday morning corporate worship, for congregational singing. These are songs that are rooted in the Word of God solely. But notice with me, as we move forward, notice with me the two audiences that Paul has in mind as we sing. Many of us, including myself, grew up thinking that congregational singing, church singing, was only intended for one audience, God alone. But not according to Paul. Paul has two audiences in mind as he's thinking about congregational singing. God is certainly the primary audience of our singing. But according to Paul, singing in the church is also 
for the edification and the building up of other believers. He says in verse 19, addressing, addressing, so pointing your singing at one another. Addressing one another in these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And listen, in Paul's mind, it isn't the mere singing or the mere melody that builds us up. It's not just that we're to sing anything, as beautiful as that may sound. Instead, congregational singing builds up the body of Christ because, precisely because we are singing the word of God. So again, these are the only songs that are authorized to sing, which means our singing is a ministry of the word to one another. These are songs that are directly from the word of God and they're spiritual songs and hymns that are accurately reflecting the teaching of God's word. I have one cross-reference here. I want you to see Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, or you can jot it down and look it up later. Paul says the same thing, but in a more explicit way to the church in Colossae. He says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, that's Paul's shorthand for the gospel, let the gospel, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly. How does that happen, Paul? By teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So again, this means, according to Paul, that when we engage in singing together, we are engaging in the ministry of the word. It's a means by which the word of God dwells in us richly when we sing it to one another. And when you and I open our mouths to sing out the word of God, we are actively serving a brother or sister in Christ around us. And if you need another reason why online church is horrible, (laughs) we've all experienced that. Here's a reason 951 why watching church online simply will not do. Because your singing and my singing is designed by God in part to encourage real life in the flesh people. Now, Chris and Ryan did their best during when we were online and we did that whole shenanigans. We did all that thing and he, they did their best to lead us. But do you remember how frustrating that was not to have our voices join together and be encouraged by the singing of the saints? Yet another reason why being at church means that you are embodied, where your voices can be heard, where you can see other members in the church and you can see if they're hurting or if they're silent, if they're normally singing and they're not, my voice will be theirs. I will sing the gospel to them. And so being together as a church and encouraging members through song is essential. In this respect, singing on a Sunday is quite different than any other times that we sing. When we gather on a Sunday, our earbuds are out. When we gather on a Sunday morning, this is different than our quiet time before the Lord. This is different, and there's nothing wrong with having a playlist on Spotify. This is just different, altogether different. And one of the reasons it's different is because of the secondary audience 
that we are singing the gospel to other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a ministry of the word. And please notice also that Paul in verse 19 isn't singling out the musically inclined. (laughs) He isn't singling out worship leaders or those who are particularly good at singing. There's no qualification here. No, instead, Paul is aiming this admonition, this encouragement to the entire church. As Matt Merker writes in his little book on corporate worship, he says, when you joined the church, you joined the choir. This is a whole nother way to think about singing in the church. When you join the church, you don't sign up to listen. You sign up to sing. I don't think the evolution of corporate worship over these last 50 years has been particularly healthy. And this is not a shot at other churches. We are for sure guilty of contributing to that kind of culture here. And we're learning to be untangled. We want to reform our corporate singing in a way that doesn't contribute to this. But we have moved, haven't we? We have moved from congregational singing to stage performing. And instead of instruments accompanying the voices of the saints, speakers and subwoofers are cranked to the loudest height so that we can no longer hear the congregation, but we can only hear the gifted. And as I follow Christ... I don't see God only turning up the volume to the gifted. I see him turning up the volume to the ordinary, to the outcast, to those who didn't have a voice, giving them a voice. And so as as Dever has often said, what we need to do is turn down the stage and turn up the congregation. And we're committed to doing that here. We're committed to turning up the volume of the ordinary, which isn't ordinary, saints of God. I don't think turning up the gifted represents the kingdom well. I think the gifted in song are apt, as David said, to lead us into singing. And we have great leaders in music here. They're gifted, they're talented, and they lead us into singing. But the best kind of corporate singing is when this guy or gal goes away and the voices of the saints carry the moment. As another writer, uh, another author writes this, he says, quote, in the church, we need to prioritize the sound of the human voice as the main instrument in the congregation the human voice as the main instrument in the congregation. And I would add, we need to prioritize the sound of all of the saints, all of the voices of God's people on Sunday morning. Now, don't get me wrong. I can see some of you are making two or three steps ahead. I am not advocating for no instruments. Um, This doesn't mean that we can't add drum or bass or, Lord, a cello on Sunday morning. Just a cello. 
Here's what I found out about the cello. Not in my notes, so this could go wrong. But a cello, the reason why it is such a, an attractive instrument is that it, it only hits human ranges. So the cello, right? Des, am I, am I wrong or right? Okay, you can get all of the facts from Des later, but the, the cello hits is the, one of the main instruments that accompanies human voices better than other instruments. So, cello players in here, if you're here, it's not that we can't add other instruments. It just means that whatever we add, we are adding not to accompany what's up here, but we are adding to accompany the voices of God's saints to come alongside the congregation in singing. So what does it mean to live a spirit-filled life? It means, according to Paul, in part, to sing the gospel to one another Sunday after Sunday. Very practical. If you're wondering, what can I do to live the spirit-filled life? Open your voice and sing the gospel. And somebody, I guarantee it, needs to hear your voice in the congregation. For every believer to join the church choir, so to speak, and let the ministry of the word flow through you. So that's the first half of Paul's exhortation. He begins with drawing our attention to the secondary audience, other believers. He now ends this section by drawing our attention to the primary audience for singing, God himself. The primary audience of our singing, especially in the church, is, of course, God himself. Look at verses 19 to the end. Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and here it is, making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So we sing to one another unto the Lord. Giving thanks, and this is all one big run-on sentence, giving thanks, verse 20, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So God now, being our primary audience, promotes a self-forgetful freedom in our singing. If other people were our primary audience, we'd have all kinds of insecurities. I know I would. But because God is our primary audience, his ears are what our voices were designed ultimately to meet. We can have now this self-forgetful freedom in our singing. Keith and Kristen Getty, again in their, their little book, they write this, quote, don't sing primarily because you love to sing or keep from singing because you don't like to sing. Instead, sing because you love who made you and you love who formed you and sing because of the one who enabled you to sing. Beloved, at the root of why we sing to God is our utter gratitude. That's what Paul is saying. Our thankfulness to God for who he is and what he has done for us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why do we sing? We sing because the gospel is true. We sing because heaven is coming 
We sing because Jesus Christ, the only sinless man who ever lived, gave his whole life for us. We sing because Jesus was the first one in the church in the baptismal. He was the one who identified with us, though he had no sins. We sing ultimately because the gospel is true and God is listening to our voices. Why do we sing? We sing because singing completes our joy. This is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. In other words, when we sing as God's people, our praise is completing our enjoyment of God. An example of this is when something good happens to you, you complete that enjoyment by telling somebody else. I hear it all the time with movies, right? There's almost more joy in telling about a movie that you enjoyed. The reason for that is our praise of the thing completes our enjoyment of it. So when we sing together as God's people, it is not just expressing our joy, it's completing our joy. And it's beautiful when God's people are engaged. So why do we sing? We sing also to awaken the parts of our souls that lie dormant and unthankful. If we're being honest, there are parts of our hearts and souls that lie dormant, that aren't always thankful. Right? When I come to church as your preacher, I don't always feel thankful. Sometimes I feel burdened and insecure and nervous and anxious or distracted. Singing awakens the parts of our souls that lie dormant and unthankful. Isaiah 51, or rather 52 verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And then verse 9, break forth together, Isaiah says, into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. We sing, beloved, to awaken our souls to the strength and beauty of the Lord. Why do we sing? We sing because God is merciful. He doesn't just show mercy. He's merciful. He's full of it. He's full of mercy. Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 13 says, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of the evildoers. We sing because God is not silent when the hands of evildoers plot injustice. When we see justice roll down, we sing praises because God is not idle. God is active and he shows mercy to those who have been shown injustice. Why do we sing? We sing because life is hard, but resurrection is coming. This is why we sing. We sing because somewhere in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, there's an empty tomb. We sing because death does not have the final word for those who are in Christ. We sing because the cross was not the end of the gospel story. We sing because joy is always coming in the morning. We sing to God whenever and wherever because our joy is in him. Our joy is not rooted in circumstances. This is why Paul and Silas could sing from the prison cell. 
in Acts chapter 16. I'll read it to you, verses 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaking and immediately all of the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. Notice that they don't start singing once the bonds are broken. They don't start singing because the prison was shaken. They were singing in the darkness of night. They were singing when nothing great was happening but it's because their joy and the praise in their heart was not rooted in their circumstances, in their eight-by-eight eight cell. Their joy is untethered from suffering. Their joy is rooted in God. Why do we sing? Why do we sing? We sing now because we'll sing then. We sing today because we'll sing tomorrow. When all the hosts of heaven are gathered around the lamb who was slain. We already sung this from Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. We will sing now because we will sing then. And here's the new song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Every tribe and language and people and nation. Imagine the harmonies on that great day. When no fear of man exists when no insecurities exist, imagine the melody and the harmony of every person redeemed by the blood of the lamb is shouting forth praise. We, we sing now because we're gonna sing then. Then I looked, verse 11, and I heard around the throne, again, the, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why do we sing? We sing because we will sing in that great and glorious day. Finally, we sing to God because he sings over us. We sing to God because he sings over us. Listen to this prophecy by Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is an incredible scene, a credible thought. According to this prophecy from Zephaniah, as another writes, God himself will sing and make music as he brings his children into the kingdom of righteousness, peace, 
and joy. God sings over us. Music and melody is not man's idea. It's God's idea. Song, harmony, the laws of music, notes that don't seem right and notes that do seem right. All of it is God's design. God is the great musician. It's his ministry and he sings over us. So church, we sing because someone in our church needs to be encouraged by our gospel heralding voices. We sing to one another. So it should not be awkward. It will be awkward now <laughs> as we look at one another as we sing. And I, I look at you guys when I sing. And I know that's a little weird because we're all in like a, this, I'm singing, um, I'm, I'm alone, it's just me and Jesus, and it's kind of like when I'm in my car, but now there's other people around me. I want us to break out of that, and I want us to be encouraged by the voices. So one thing that we need to be encouraged, I am not, we are not expecting nor would it be right if we just all just, it was just perfectly mature. No, we grow in this, like every area of the Christian life. We grow. We mature in our corporate singing. Those of you who know how to do melody can do melody from the congregation. It's the choir. And we can grow in our encouragement through song, Sunday after Sunday. So this is not a sermon to just get you to get after it. Just, just, just do it. It's not a Nike situation here. There may be a time on a Sunday or a season when you can't get melody out of your body. But you know that somebody next to you, in front of you, behind you, will be your voice for you that Sunday. We sing because worthy is the Lamb. Amen? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. May God himself grant us self-forgetful freedom as we sing to the Lord with all of our hearts. Let me, let me pray. Father in heaven, like every other area of our lives, we are dependent upon you. So our expectation is upon you to grow your people, to grow us in the ministry of the word through song. God, I pray that your people would be deeply encouraged as they hear the voices of the saints lifting their voices to you. I pray that you would be honored. I pray that this would be a, as Paul said, a sacrifice of praise. God, we thank you for this means of grace as we come together. Continue to grow us and mature us, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.